You're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by Serba, the Canada-Eurasia-Russia Business Association. We're a non-profit supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of Serba and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights relating to the region. Today we are hosting Paul Fast, founder of the well-known Fast App Structural Engineering Company. For over three decades, Paul has been the design leader for many of the firm's most significant award-winning projects, such as the Richmond Olympic Oval, built for the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver. Paul was also the recipient of the well-known R.A. McLaughlin Memorial Award in 2013, and more recently, the coveted gold medal from the Institution of Structural Engineers out of London, England. I believe that's awarded just uh, once per year. Paul has been recognized for his unconventional use of materials, including hybrids of timber, concrete, and steel. He delights in work-life balance, spending much time with his family, and derives special joy from many years of involvement with orphaned children and single mothers in Russia, back in the Rostov region where his family uh, originally uh, hails from uh, several generations ago. Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning, Nathan. Um, yeah, real honor to be here with you and uh, chat a little bit. Well, it's a pleasure. Uh, I want to talk some about your professional uh, involvement, but first of all, that uh, the last part of that introduction uh, talks about charity, about your work in Russia, and of course, that uh, that's intriguing for our listeners. What uh, what on earth have you been doing in Russia, and is it is it uh, a purely uh, charity project that you and your family have undertaken. Can you describe that for us for a little bit? Sure, yeah, it, it's been mostly charity work over there. Although we've been uh, sort of nipping at the edges of some engineering work, if you like. Um, I've given several lectures over there um, over the years uh, to the architecture school at a conference and uh, we're planning some more lectures. Uh, probably won't be this fall yet, but uh, certainly next spring when the whole COVID thing dies down. But uh, principally it's been, uh, Charity work, yeah. Working as you mentioned with uh, orphan children and uh, and moms and uh, even moms and dads that are taking in orphan children, um, and that's taken on many different forms. It's uh, spread even beyond the Rostov region now to Krasnodar and even the Moscow region. So uh, yeah, there's a real growing charity work, and we're thrilled to be part of it. So where did you start, and why did you start there? Oh well, <laughs> we sort of got to wind the clock back, uh, maybe uh, 40, 50 years, maybe even you know, close to 60 years, if you like. Uh, when I was a little kid, um, I grew up uh, in, uh, I'm of um, German Mennonite stock. And as you know, uh, German Mennonites, they had their roots in Russia, uh, before that Prussia and before that Northern Germany, but um, spent many years in Russia. And uh, my parents, as well as my grandparents and my great grandfather, who I knew as well as a young boy, they instilled in us a, a real love for all things Russian. Um, notwithstanding that was the Cold War era, but uh, they, they had good experience in Russia. Yes, things went uh, a little bit darker during the whole, you know, post-World War I and the revolution years, but all in all, Russia treated them very, very well. They thrived in Russia and they instilled a, a love for Russian people in us. Uh, so we grew up, even as a kid, I ate like the borscht, I ate Vereniki, I ate halopse, you know, 
-hmm. and I still love those things. So like, uh, this is like a great uh, culinary fair, right? Well, so, me too. Uh, they, they, you and I have that in yeah. common. I put on quite a few pounds thanks to that, thanks to that Russian cuisine. Yeah, it can be a little bit of the fatty side sometimes. And I remember my great grandfather, uh, just uh, like he, he loved to just chew that fat, and <laughs> just like whatever, <laughs> but it sure tastes good. I love it. Uh, and the sour cherry vernicchio is still my favorite. Oh yeah. And anyway, in any event, um, the other interesting thing was um, Easter service on Sunday. Uh, we were like a you know German ethnic German Mennonite church. Also had English service, English preaching, and that. But on Easter Sunday morning, our pastor, who also hailed from that part of the world from Russia, uh, he would, amongst other Christmas, or, uh, amongst other Easter greetings, um, also say Christos vos Christ. I remember that etched my mind, right? Christ is risen. <laughs> so we had a little bit of Russian. We had a little bit of Russian even church, but that's about the only words I remembered, right? Oh, yes. Uh, so I, I, I really regret never having learned Russian. Uh, we, we weren't taught at, at a younger age. I sure wish I spoke it now, and I've been meaning to learn it, and I probably still will, but uh, whatever. Um, but we grew up with, um, you know, with, with people that uh, instilled love uh, for Russia in us. And um, my, my great-grandfather had also actually... Uh, he established a factory in Russia. Um, they manufactured uh, um, farming equipment uh, and all sorts of implements, amongst others. He actually, interestingly, on their letterhead, and the letterheads back then were way more complicated than they are now. It was full of all sorts of you know, pictures and that. And in there was this picture of a gold medal that they'd gotten also for this uh, sunflower, um, sunflower seed pressing machine that they had invented. And I guess this became very popular. And I saw one of the machines actually when I visited Russia for the first time in the yard of that factory still sitting there, yeah? So it was pretty cool. So he won a gold medal. So there was some innovation side and maybe that's where some of the creative juices have, have flown down into my DNA. But uh, he did, uh, he established a factory. They were well off, um, but he was also a, like a, call it a itinerant like lay preacher that loved to just share the, the, the good news of the Christian gospel with the Russian people. So he sort of had this dual uh, function in life while he was in Russia. Now you're talking about your great grandfather. I assume you're talking about your great grandfather before the before the revolution, right? You're talking about your your great great grandfather in Tsarist Russia, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Y yes. And then tipping over into they they they, le they left in the late 1920s, so they did experience you know the revolution as well, and basically had to leave Milarovo there, the town where they had. Um, their, their, their factory, which is about two hours north of Rostov region, right on the Ukrainian border. Um, they had to leave their, virtually just with their shirts on their back and headed down to um, the, the Caucasus region and spend another few years down there before they actually then left for Canada. So um, yeah, that's, uh, that, that was their experience over there in Russia and uh, came over here and uh, he went on then to, um, my mother was actually born in Russia too, um, down the Caucasus region. But she left at five years of age then, and uh, my great-grandfather, after he left Russia then, uh, because circumstances became very, very difficult for him, um, he actually spent a fair bit of time also ministering, like if you like, as a pastor, as a preacher to um, the local Dukobors here in British Columbia. Uh, he went to other Russian communities. He went also to Germany, to South America, all over the place. And basically, uh, rather than spending time on business things, he became more like a, a pastor type of preacher person. Yeah. You know? Well, good for him. What a, what a, what a fascinating story. Yeah. So, Paul, uh, how did it all start? Uh, 20 years ago, your family wasn't active there. You know, when and how did you begin uh, your charity work in the Rostov region? Yeah, good question, Nathan. Um, this is how it happened. Um, about 2006, uh, my mom 
became aware of the fact that the um, Nilarufa government, the county government there, had um, had themselves become aware that there's some descendants of the Martins family. The name of the factory in Nilarufa was Martins de Ferrandic. They discovered that some of the Martins family descendants were, were living in Canada. And the message came through, hey, um, if you want to come over here once and, um, and, and, and meet us, hey, that'd be great because my great-grandfather and his factory there, uh, they left a very good reputation behind, even though that was 90 years earlier already. But somehow that reputation lingered in the history books that he paid very fair wages. He built, um, he built housing for the workers. And uh, so they said, hey, come on over once and we'd love to meet you. And so my mom sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, would you want to be the representative of the family that goes over there? And um, we, my wife and I, we contemplated it for a while and said, sure, we'll want to go. But at the same time, we also became aware of the fact that, um, you know, there's, there's a considerable number of orphan children in Russia. It's not the only country with lots of orphans. We have them in Canada or two. And, but somehow over the years, we'd always thought, is there some sort of charity work that we could put our hands to the plow on that we can actually, you know, you don't just send a check, but you actually get involved yourself. And so uh, we were looking for an opportunity like that. We thought, well, maybe there's something over in Russia too, in, in, the, in, the, in the home of our forebears, if you like. So um, we said, let's go with a twofold purpose. We'll meet the county government there and let ourselves be shown around a little bit and uh, just revisit that, um, that place of our ancestors. And so we um, got a plane, went over there. The government people met us, gave us a, a very, very welcome, um, very warm welcome over there. Uh, they showed us the, the factory, uh, which had been repurposed then uh, to manufacture some winches and other type of machinery. Uh, very large property, actually. And we saw that. And they also took us some other historic sites. And uh, yeah, it was just an all around very nice visit. And then um, we were put in touch with a local pastor there, too, who uh, we, we discussed this um, question of, you know, orphan children in Russia with him. And he then took us to a small town about 45 minutes away from Europa called Voloshino. Voloshino. And uh, also on the Ukrainian border there. He took us down there and to visit two families that he was helping out. And the one, they, these two families consisted of two moms, husbands both deceased. The one mom was taking care of about 16 kids. The other one's taking care of about eight kids. Paul, I have to interrupt you. Did you just say 16 kids? One mother gave birth to 16 kids? No, this, these, are, these are adopted kids now. Sorry, these are adopted kids, foster kids, sorry. Oh, okay. And, and she'd had, she had her, her own children were growing up already. And now she and her sister, who's taking care of eight adopted kids and foster kids, they're living in these circumstances and in, in these conditions, which we just thought, whoa, you know? Like the one mom with the 16 kids at, in the evening, at night, she'd lie in her bed and she had a little um, rope or string attached to this rocking cradle next to her because there's a couple of kids lying on the bed with her. And then she'd have this um, string attached to her so she could just move her arm and rock this cradle. That was another part of the room. Anyways, um, and, and many of these were physically and mentally challenged kids too. Well, that's uh, innovation for you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But so many of them were also like, you know, um, you know physically disabled, mentally disabled, and, and, and they also had their washroom facilities they had to go outside to an outhouse. You know, it was just like, it was sad, sad, sad. And um, so, um, you know, the translator in, in the process of introducing us to some and sharing some of these stories, he actually began to weep, you know, as he was describing what, what the, the, the past of some of these children, where they came from, how she came across them, yeah. And so, um, of course, that's a very moving experience, but, um, you know, it's good to give us some sober reflection before you dive in, like, you know, full on. So uh, we came home, uh, my wife and I, and we gave us a good thought for a year. And then we said, let's go back and see what we can do about it. And so uh, we went back, um, spoke with that local pastor that lived over too, and said, well, what do you think we could do here? What would be useful for those families, you know, just as a starting point? So we, at that point in time, then, that was in 2007, we decided let's actually um, 
build a couple of houses for them in Milaroca there so they can be close to the hospital. There's other people to help them meet their needs, you know, support them, you know, instead of the two moms just being all on their own out there in a small little village. And so uh, that's where we stepped in and, and, and the work began. So, so you built new houses. Did, did, did you design that? You are, you are a structural engineer. Uh, did you design those houses as well? Or did you just use Canadian plans? Did you, how did you do that? Well, you know, you, you can't just use a stock plan for something like that because, uh, you know, 16 kids with one mom is a unique situation. So uh, we built it almost like motel-like and, uh, you know, lots of bedrooms, a big playroom upstairs in the attic. And, uh, yeah, we, we designed the, the, the plans. And interestingly, we said, let's um, also build them using Canadian um, type of framing, Canadian stick frame, single family home framing. And so uh, we did that and we pulled that off and, uh, you know, it was a trying experience, uh, you know, just, you know, dealing in, with, um, you know, contracts in a whole new country, but uh, we did pull it off, um, brought over some Western help, if you like, to help get the frame structure up. But uh, it's all worked out well, and there's two houses standing there and uh, being uh, used for, for, for great uh, purposes right now. Um, well, that's fantastic. And I know you built those two houses, but you didn't stop there. As I understand, you've got uh, a whole host of programs now up and running. What are you doing? Yeah, no, we actually, we actually pivoted. Um, and we decided rather than invest in, uh, in housing per se, let's invest more in services. We also bought another home, an existing home in a city called Volgadonks. But there's also a family with adopted kids and fostering kids uh, living in there. But we decided let's invest it more in the service side as opposed to infrastructure side. We thought it'd be better spent money there. Not that it was poorly spent money on the infrastructure, but so in the meantime now, um, now we've established what is called the Martin Memorial Foundation, of which I'm a director. Uh, it's registered in Russia as a registered char charity in Russia, but the, the operations are carried out by an organization called the Adoption Support Center which is headed up by who's become a very good friend in the meantime, a fellow called Stephen Abakoff. And, uh, and they are based there in the Rostov region. And they've gotten involved in all sorts of ministry work over there uh, amongst orphans. And, uh, and some of the things that are happening, for instance, is, is a school of adoption, uh, which uh, is actually um, done in liaison with the uh, local Rostov government as well. And where they basically, if you want to adopt in Russia, you have to uh, go through some training first, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and I'm talking about adoption within Russia. We're not interested at all in taking orphan children from Russia over into North America here in Canada. It's not even allowed anymore. That's not the purpose. It's all local-based orphan work. Yeah. So we run the School of Adoption. That is uh, Steve Abakoff with his uh, Adoption Support Center, where the parents come in, get training, and then they can adopt children. And we continue to support them that way. We also uh, give regular monthly support to families that adopt children. We give them a, a bonus, a sort of a starting bonus um, when they first adopt the children. And then we give a monthly um, allowance that will help them with some of their financial needs. Because if you foster children, just as it is over here too, then you get a monthly government allowance. If you adopt children, which typically makes them feel more part of the family, you know, if they're fully integrated that way, then you don't get any uh, monthly stipend. So we step into that gap and offer them some additional um, support, financial help that way. So that's another aspect of um, what we're doing over there. Uh, we also help with uh, on, on the medical front, you know, where they have medical needs. And uh, we set up a program where they visit the orphans also that, that not are not necessarily in adopted families, where they're still in the orphanage. And we, you know, couple, almost like a big brothers type of thing, couple parents with uh, kids in the orphanage so that they get some, you know, parental involvement in their lives there too. So uh, many, many different aspects to, to, to what's happening there. Those are just some of them. 
Are you supporting uh, the kids' education in any way? Um, well, indirectly through the um, monthly allowance that we give the families. I remember speaking to Stephen a while ago, and it seems to me he talked about a scholarship program. Wasn't there some kind of a scholarship program as well? Yes, yes. And that runs on another track yet, too. And that's right in uh, Middle River County. It's turned out to be something very, very successful, actually. We've been doing it for years now. And uh, what we do is we ask the students at the Middle Robo Technical School to uh, write an essay on some aspect of the life of my great-grandfather. They have to read the book that he wrote. They have to write an essay on it. There's a jury that's in place. They uh, adjudicate, uh, read all the essays, and adjudicate who is the winner, who wrote the best essay. And there's uh, three top awards that are given, first, second, and third place. Um, and those are then uh, given out at an annual ceremony that takes place in the uh, Milarovo uh, concert hall there. And uh, the mayor attends there too. And there's a fantastic um, program then of dance and of singing. And it, it just, it's, it's a joy to be there. It's a very special event. We, we have a board over here. Um, and some of those board members have traveled with me over to Russia too, and are, are totally thrilled about it too. They're all actually family members. Um, that are serving the board here. One from Toronto, uh, a couple from Winnipeg, and then uh, my wife and I out here. And uh, yeah, they just have uh, a real heart for this work, uh, for the work over there too. And the people that we work with over there, the Russian people. It's been such a privilege to work with what are salt of the earth people. Like they're just fantastic, you know, and, and, and they're so committed. Like it, it's one thing for us to give some financial support, Nathan, from over here. But when you're in the trenches with challenging kids you know some of these kids you know they, they they come from such broken backgrounds and working through all those issues with them like they're with them 24 7 a day it's really tough um you know for those families so like we, we have the easy part of the job here um but boy hats off to some of the moms and the dads that are involved over there and steve avakoff who just lays himself down for those kids too over there uh, one thing we do also nathan that's interesting is that we give we try and give the families a bit of a a, a respite every year in that uh, we um send them we also pay for them to go to a family camp once a year. Oh, nice. With their kids. And this is a highlight for them. And it's a focus. The focus is on also giving them some teaching material then on how they can deal with their kids better. And the families can exchange notes, if you like. Um, and so they just love that summer camp that they go to every year. They just love it. it it's, it's a one week where they can get away and just enjoy things, you know, and down the water there and at the camp. And uh, there's also parents clubs that we've started where the parents get together in the different regions and they can exchange notes on, on, on all the difficult situations they face and the successes and the failures that they're having with their kids and the, in educating them and raising them. So, wow, that's uh, excellent. Excellent that you're putting so much effort and it sounds like uh, financial resources into a program to, to help uh, uh, people in Russia. I, I got to ask, there has been some, uh, this is a, perhaps a pr provocative question, there has been pushback from the government when money comes in from abroad for non-governmental organizational activities. Have you had any problems with the local government or the national government, or has it been smooth sailing the whole time? All in all, it's been smooth sailing. Uh, we, we had some audits, and we've come through 100% clean, and, and the audits tend to be very, very thorough and time-consuming, as you can appreciate, right? Very time-consuming. Yep. Uh, you know, where you sometimes say, oh, it doesn't really have to be. But you know what? It's better that there's, um, you know, auditing, accountability going on for these type of things. Uh, we want to just prove to be completely apolitical as well. There's no political involvement we have whatsoever in anything. It's just strictly we're there to, uh, you know, help families that are taking in uh, orphan children. And um, that's the focus. And so the auditors can 
time it all they like, but it, it is a very grueling process. Well, fabulous. Kudos to you, Paul, and kudos to your family, your mother, and, and everybody that takes part in this effort. I, uh, I take my hat off to you. Yeah, well, my mother just passed away last year. Oh, did she? Did she? I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, my mother just passed away um, just this past year, and she had yeah she had a total heart for 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 that work. You know, right to her dying day, she was asking, "How's it going? How's it going?" And so, uh, yeah, that was uh, she was the inspiration for that work, and she's the one that actually went. I suppose she never got a chance to. I was about to say, did she ever get a chance to travel there and see see the fruits of of, of her labors? Yeah, I took her once. Oh, great! I did, Nathan. I took her over there once about like seven years ago. I couldn't believe it. Like uh, you know, we off the plane. I think like. I don't know what what she was running on there, but she was a she was awake I think for like three four days in a row. She was so excited to be back in her home country there where she where she was born, and seeing everything. And she's so excited about the work that was going on, like uh, it was it was a wonderful experience uh, spending those days with my mom over there. So, um, and she actually get this at the age of eighty five, she had it placed in her heart. She said God places on my heart to start a charity. She actually got a registered charity established here in Canada. So we can flow funds through Canada over to Russia, tax exempt, which makes it a lot easier to do work over there if, if, if your money's going over tax free, right? It sounds uh, like your mother was a great woman and uh, you and her together have uh, accomplished great things. Uh, let me switch gears if you, uh, if you don't mind and talk a little bit about your professional activities. I was intrigued to read that you work with hybrids, uh, hybrid construction materials uh, including very tall timber structures. Can you tell me about uh, what, what you've done there? I, I know you've done something at UBC. Uh, what have you done and why is that significant? Yeah, um, good question, Nathan. Um, we're structural engineers and, uh, and, and uh, I can really say we have a passion for what we do. We, we, we love what we do. And uh, we've gotten involved in many, many interesting projects over the years. One of the most challenging ones was definitely the, uh, what they call a tall wood house or the Brock Commons residences at UBC the 18-story student residence tower. And uh, the intention was to try to build it all with wood. Typically, you build those things with concrete or with steel. We were challenged with the task of, can we build this with timber? And uh, we came up with a system there, which was uh, rather unconventional, but was really effective. And most importantly, it was cost-effective. And uh, we managed to pull that one off. And at the time of uh, completion of construction, it was the tallest uh, timber tower in the world. So, Paul, I, I'm told that that's more environmentally responsible to, to construct from timber. Is that right? As opposed to concrete and steel? In what ways? Yeah. Um, you know, it's all about uh, what we call embodied carbon, how much carbon goes to the atmosphere in order to produce a certain type of material and, and how much is actually also stored in, in a certain material. And when you measure um, wood against the other traditional building materials, concrete and steel, the structural materials at least, um, you know, wood scores very well when you use sustainability metrics to, 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 to measure the different materials. So that's why things are heading in a wood direction more and more right now. And uh, we'll, we'll see where that all goes. But uh, I just was also asked to write a, an article for US Magazine on does it make sense to build taller with wood? And uh, it, it'll be wound up in a lot of controversy because uh, you have representatives from the wood industry, steel industry, concrete industry, you know, all wanting to push their products and everyone will say they're cooking their own soup. And to a certain degree, that's true, right? And, and, and yet, as a consulting engineer, who, who should be really agnostic when it comes to materials, um, <laughs> I don't want to be pushing any one material just uh, at the expense of another. Whatever makes sense should be used, yeah? But right now, wood definitely scores very well according to the best science that we have uh, when measuring against sustainability metrics.
So, Paul, how tall can you build with wood? You can't build a 50-story skyscraper out of wood. How tall can you go with wood? You can get up to 50 stories, but, uh, you know, my suggestion would be rather than force it, rather than force a square peg into a round hole and force wood to do stuff that um, other materials that are stronger, namely steel and concrete, can do better than use wood where it has its best strength. And so um, typically, if we were to design, we did a, a hypothetical 450-foot tall tower, which would be about uh, 45 stories for a building in Portland. It hasn't been constructed yet. But um, what we did there was we actually um, came up with a system that also incorporated some steel and some concrete into the design, and it used a lot of wood. So it became what we call a hybrid timber, steel, concrete tower, yeah? So we like to mix and match the materials and, and, and use each one where it actually fits best into the equation, if you like. And uh, that's the direction of the future. And so we'll, we'll build tall. There's a 70-story planned uh, for in, in Tokyo right now. I was in Tokyo actually giving a presentation to the Canadian Embassy and uh, met the company that's going to be doing that. And uh, they're fully committed, and, uh, but they're going to have to put some other materials there too, not just pure wood. Uh, for all structural components. So you said 70 stories, 70 stories. You can't build that out of pure wood. Yep, yep. Amazing. You, you could actually, but the thing, the thing is that the, wood, the, the wood posts, the wood columns, if you like, they're going to get so huge that you might not have a whole lot of space left to rent out, right? <laughs> you know, the columns grow and grow and grow. <laughs> and, and, and steel can be much smaller, right? And concrete can be much smaller. So at some point you say, well, you know, what makes sense here? So what we try to do is we try and incorporate into the floor slab. Instead of onto the vertical post, put it at the floor slab where it just spans short distances between the major, you know, supporting beams. And then uh, and let the post be something else. So there's different ways of mixing and matching, you know, uh, that, that makes sense in the end. But um, yeah. We'll see where it goes. I mean, there's always somebody that, uh, and I, I, I suggest it is uh, somewhat vain, but there's always somebody that's going to want to be at the front of the line and say, I built the tallest wood building in the world, right? Just like everybody wants to still stand in the line up front of the line and say, not everybody, but many that want to say, I built the tallest building in the world, right? Right now it's the Burj Khalifa. Mm -hmm. yep. I think there's another taller one going up right now in, uh, in Riyadh, right? Or Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. I can't remember which, which city there. It's not under construction right now. You know, it's I've heard that. Yes, mile, yeah, I've heard that. A mile high or something. So always somebody that wants to line up, uh, get to the front of the line, and say, "Hey, I did this for this reason," and um, you know, they won't necessarily say, "I wanted to be the tallest the building in the world." But uh, uh, yeah, so there's some of that. But um, <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's a great honor. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the 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 Richmond Olympic Oval. You of course uh, that was uh, a much lauded project. You received an award for it. Uh, what was special about that oval? Yeah, that was um, that was a real uh, highlight project for us. What was special about it was it was one of the longest spanning. Um, it became one of the longest spanning timber structures in the world, and it used a, a construction method which had never really been used in the world too. And that came off of uh, some visits I made to uh, several other speed skating ovals that had been built in Europe, in Torino, in Heerenveen, uh, Netherlands, and also in Lillehammer. Um, up there in Norway. And I picked up a couple of things there. Firstly, that a prefabricated approach to the, to the roof panels, prefabricating ahead of time and, and putting large panels up on the roof as opposed to just sort of stick building it with individual beams and, and girders and that it would, would probably be, make a lot of sense. But the other thing was uh, what is the bane of a lot of good architecture, particularly recreation facilities, is you have to have you know heating and cooling, right? And so you got these massive mechanical ducts that are hanging up near ceiling there and uh, they're just like unsightly. 
and they just de destroy good architectural expression. And, and we love to express the structure as part of the architecture. That, that's, that's our niche in the market. And um, so we decided if we can bury these big round ducks in some structural members, you know, some structural arches or something, hide them, that'd be super. If we can prefabricate the roof as much as possible, that'd be super too. And that's what we accomplished there. Um, we came up with these uh, timber arches that were spanning, that spanned 350, 300 feet across the space, you know, about 90, it's about 90 meters or so. And uh, they're actually hollow inside. They're like V-shaped and they're hollow inside. And we bury the ducts inside there. We bury the sprinkler lines inside there. We bury the electrical conduits inside there. So you see none of that. And then there's diffusers that are in the face of these arches, these, these timber arches, and, uh, and, and they blow the air out into the space. So you see none of this duct stuff. You don't see any of the conduits and electrical stuff. And uh, then the panels in between these big arches that were centered about 45 feet in the centers, there are these prefabricated panels which were made with simple two by four construction. Like just taking our stalker material here, and we formed what we call wood wave panels. They sort of have in a cross section, they look like a wave. And, uh, and, and they're a very delicate piece of structure engineering. And we had to fully test them ahead of time, 11 full scale low tests to see if they're gonna be strong enough. And they were shipped out to site then in 12 foot by 45 foot long panels. There was acoustic liner inside already, there were sprinkler lines inside already, everything was installed ahead of time and they were just dropped onto the big arches that were spanning 300 feet across the space. And so that became just a, a marvelous um, structural architectural expression. And uh, yeah, it, it uh, got a lot of recognition. And, uh, and we had a lot of joy designing it. it was very, very stressful, Nathan. Very stressful. <laughs> was it? <laughs> I, I was about to say, what an honor it must have been to make such an important contribution to uh, uh, perhaps the, the, the greatest international event that your, your home city has ever hosted. What an honor for you to be a central part of that. It was, it was very, very special. And, and, we, and we did get uh, a, lot, a lot of recognition to... Um, one of the things that also was used there, Nathan, was, it was interesting is we got this pine beetle epidemic, right? Yes. that hit our BC forests. And so we, at the very outset of design, we suggested, how about we incorporate as much pine beetle killed wood into this structure as possible? And that actually became the case, yeah? Um, so it didn't solve the whole pine beetle problem, but it was a nice gesture, I think, towards a problem that we have out there. And uh, yeah, so that became a bit of a story in that whole thing too. Uh, but I lost a lot of sleep there too. An environmentally sound, an environmentally sound approach. Yes, very nice. But, uh, but Nathan, I can tell you this too. Um, I lost a lot of sleep in that project. Oh, um, did you? It was a, it was a tough, tough project. Yeah, it was a tough project. And uh, for instance, when they had those big arches up, uh, when they erected the first arch, and it came out in four pieces, and they sort of dropped in this crowning piece, if you like, you know, the, the keystone piece, you know, 25 meters long, and they invited the media out to see this and the politicians all came out to see it and they dropped this play, thing into place and it didn't quite fit. Oh dear. And so the crane was holding it there and the, the workers were jigging around there and figured out, you know, well, eventually the media and everybody, the politicians got bored. They had to go to the other appointments. They all left the site and we had to take the piece back out again and figure out what went wrong, you know? So. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, that would be uncomfortable. That, pretty, that would be uncomfortable to say the least. I think. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, uh, you no, know, someone uh, built the scaffolding higher scaffolding tower that these things are resting on too short. And so it wasn't quite high enough, so it wasn't fitting, you know, <laughs> whatever. And then it poured like crazy during, uh, during the winter period there when the arches were up and they're hollow and they got water inside them. And uh, the drain holes that we had at the end of the arches so the water would drain out there, well, they got plugged up with construction degree, debris. And so that these arches, they're like five, six feet high, you know, big triangular section. And, uh, and, and they filled up like a, 
bathtub full of water. Oh dear! And, and the water was and the water was sort of like you know squirting out the face where they hit the connector, squirting out the face there. And I looked at it, I said to the contractor, "Get a pump in every one of those things." Do you think I could convince a contractor to get a pump in every one of those arch? And and the uh, anyways, and so the wood got soaked and uh, anyways, just things we had to deal with. But uh, we made it through, and it's a marvelous facility and. Uh, yeah, it, it really is. I did. The, the perils of being a structural engineer, I, I, I never would have imagined. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but uh, I suppose you have to deal with the elements and everything, don't you? You do, yeah. Now, tell me more about the institution of structural engineers out of the UK, because it's you just got the, the coveted gold medalist, and that's a, a very high honor, I'm told. They only do it once a year. Was that connected with a specific project? And, and, and the second question is, you got an award from them earlier. You got the Supreme Award for something that you did in uh, Grandview Heights. Can you tell us about that as well yeah you know the 2021 or the, the gold medalist award uh, awarded annually as uh, is not related to any specific project it just uh it's decided on by previous presidents of the association every year um, there's no nominations there's nobody giving input they just sort of look across the whole structure engineering landscape worldwide and and try to determine who is worthy of uh honor in this respect and so it's very very humbling of course because there's some amazing Structural engineers that uh, have gone before me, and uh, I just sort of say, "Whoa, you know, I mean, I'm not that good, you know." But whatever. Uh, <laughs> well, some somebody disagrees with that <laughs> statement, evidently. <laughs> somebody disagreed, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the uh, the Grandview Heights project was um, another one altogether, and that did give that was a project um, award that it received, the highest award accorded annually by the Institution of Structural Engineers, and uh, that was for an aquatic center in uh, Surrey, BC where we actually took um, a different approach to constructing that roof. And it's actually like a hanging roof. So um, there's, a, there's a, a long lap pool, 15 meter lap pool, end to end with a leisure pool. So in between the lap pool and the leisure pool, there's some supports that we put in. And uh, then um, across the lap pool and across the leisure pool, instead of putting some big ginormous trusses or something as we call them, uh, we actually put very slender cables and sort of hung the roof from one concrete buttress to the interior support. And um, what we did there though, was instead of using steel cables, which everyone was expecting us to do, we used wood cables. So we took 180 foot long pieces of wood, glue laminated wood, and curved them and hung them there in space, side by side, just very tightly spaced, you know, and that's what supports the roof. How can you make it, how can you, I, I, I'm, I'm, talking like an, I'm talking like an amateur now, how on earth can you make a cable out of wood? Wood would snap, I would think. <laughs> no, uh, you just put enough of them up there and then it works. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you just Google, if you just Google. Well, you're uh, the Grand, expert. Yeah, if you just Google Grandview Heights Aquatic Center, well, put it this way, um, when we first presented that concept, that idea to the architect, the architect said, okay, yeah, fine. So you're gonna have some steel cables and some wood in between. I said, no. I says, the steel cables are gonna be wood cables and that's all you're gonna have. And so, okay, let's go check it out once. That was at the first concept design meeting. So we went back to our office, began to check things out to see if we were just like, uh, just pure blabber, what we're doing there. And uh, you know, it looked like it was gonna work. So we came back again, the architect said, so if I got you right, there's gonna be some steel cables with some wood in between. I said, no, the wood is gonna be hanging there like a cable, like a curved cable. <laughs> and that's what we're doing. And so, uh, yeah, and actually, interestingly, the construction manager who was building it for the city of Surrey, uh, just as we got in construction, he got cold feet and he said, we have to call a peer review on this because I don't know if I trust the system here either. So here, everything's already going to construction, starting to build. And then all of a sudden, we need a third party peer review to check out what FastNip is doing here, what FallFast is doing. So anyways, we uh, made it through that uh, 
fire as well. And uh, <laughs> amazing. Anyways, it turned out to be a great pro turned out to be a great project. And uh, once again, I'm, I'm stressed, glad but, to uh, hear that as a, as a doubting Thomas, I'm in good company because the architect himself evidently wasn't wasn't quite sure if that was a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> there was a few doubters in that one, Nathan. So, um, well, congratulations to you for, for that achievement and for everything, uh, everything you've done in your life. I think we, we've, we've glossed over probably another 20 years of uh, uh, fabulous uh, engineering that you've, uh, you've done, but we are uh, running, uh, running out of time. And so I'll ask you just two quick questions and maybe you could answer them in 30 seconds or less. First of all, what made you a leader? You know, I, I would say, well, I mean, the, the, the easy answer for me, at least, is I think everyone has their God-given gifts, you know, that you somehow stumble into or discover, right? Um, but in terms of the actual development of that, you know, I was just always wired for adventure. Like, I remember being at university, going through structural engineering. I knew from day one, I want to start my own firm. But then there was some guy that also came along at some point in time for some lecture once. And not only had he done engineering, but he sort of had done some other business stuff. And that just somehow just like I was like onto that idea, you know. And so I, what I find is um, I, I, I love engineering. I love the creativity side of it. But at the same time, I like to also combine it with business venture, you know. And, and, and that, that spills into charity work as well, right? Like just going to a different part of the world. And, and I don't know why, why aren't we working with orphan children here in Canada or China or some other place. You know, there's, every country has orphan children. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a matter of faith and, and I believe that, you know, God does guide and lead us, you know, in certain directions. And uh, that's just something that was put into my heart. And I love the engineering side of it. There's a gift that I have. And uh, I just try and, you know, take those embers, if you like, and fan them into flame as best I can and, and do the best I can with it. And uh, I, I've been super privileged. It's been just a joy being a structural engineer and also uh, just being involved in work like uh, with, with these people that we work with in Russia. As I mentioned before, soul to the earth people that just bring, uh, you know, joy in the, to, to their work. And it, it's tough work to but um, yeah, it's uh, so super blessed. What a fabulous uh, job you have. You're, you're doing what you love. You're using your God-given talents, as you say, uh, and you're giving something back to the community. You've gone back to the community where your great-grandfather came and you're giving something back. I, I, uh, I applaud you, sir. Well, you know, I, 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 I want to be, be humble in accepting that praise, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, you know, also like health-wise, you know, I, I just, I've enjoyed perfect health, perfect health all my life. So, uh, you know, it's the old um, saying that the biblical saying too, you know, to whom much has been given, much will be expected, right? And so uh, I've been given so much, you know, uh, great education, great place to be brought up here in Vancouver, wonderful country, great parents, great family. What, uh, it, it's, it's great that your faith is so strong and that it, it supports and enriches your life in so many ways. Now tell me this, what does the future hold? Um, Look, we, I just brought on a couple of young partners here in our office here. We just built a brand new office building right in the heart of Vancouver here, the, new, uh, the Midtown area near Broadway and Canby. It's a really cool four-story building. We built with timber construction as well, or hybrid timber construction. We've got fabulous staff. We've got about 125 staff worldwide now. German office is really flourishing as well. I think I'm, we didn't mention that, but we're involved in uh, our largest project ever right now for Walmart. Uh, Walmart is the world's largest retailer, as you may know, like I've over 2 million employees. They're built, yeah, I think everybody has. And they are, <laughs> they, they, they um, have their home office campus in Bentonville, Arkansas. And uh, we are doing the structural engineering for uh, all their new buildings down there, which is about 18 buildings. And they're building about two and a half million square feet of mass timber office construction, which is, uh, it'll be the largest mass timber, it is right now under construction, the largest mass timber 
project in the world. And so, you know, we're, we're getting into the U.S. market. We always sort of, uh, we, we grew up here in a little duck pond called Vancouver and BC with, you know, total population of 4 million. And now we're heading into market with like, you know, hundreds of millions of people. And it's the same with the Europe as well. So I, I am increasingly taking on a mentoring role on the engineering side and uh, in conceptual design side of things. I, I love, uh, you know, doing concept design on, on projects, gotten out of management. So um, yeah, we're looking forward to just all sorts of growth here too on, on the engineering side and on the work that we do in Russia. I mean, there's just so much opportunity to still grow that, 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 that work over there. We work with all denominations there, including the Baptists and the Pentecostals and the Orthodox and everything, everybody there. And, uh, and there's just such a big um, challenge out there still to meet. And so we're, um, we're just pushing harder and harder. And Steve is just the most wonderful person to work with over there. Like he's an entrepreneurial go-getter type with a heart for orphan children, like second to none. So, uh, and he speaks fluent English, which is a great part of it. You know, so we can communicate. You know, and uh, so we uh, not only work hard, but it was a laugh a lot. That's great. That's great to hear. And thank you so much for taking the time to share uh, share your special talents with us and to, to describe what you've done. And uh, you, you've made British Columbia proud, I can tell you, and all of Canada. We're thankful for a, a great place to to, to live. I was joined today by Paul Fast, founder of Fast and Epp Structural Engineering Firm. Uh, we've been uh, privileged to, to spend uh, 30 minutes with you today, Paul. Thanks so much for sharing with us. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. Real, uh, real honor. You've been listening to Icebreakers, the podcast produced by Serba, a nonprofit business association supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to send questions to guests and find more information about the podcast series in general on our website at www.serbanet.org. Thanks for tuning in.